Welcome to another episode of the Bighorn Podcast with amazing people and their extraordinary stories. This edition is brought to you with the generosity and support of Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 70 years. And AT&T, who reminds us, it can wait. Please don't drive distracted. Our stories have been emotional, educational, and hopefully entertaining. We started this project with the idea of having members of our community share with us their personal stories that allows us to have a greater connection with each other in our community. Today is no exception. My name is Marty Lockman, and today's guest is Mac Van Willigan. Mac is a veteran energy executive, private equity investor, corporate director, and philanthropist and has been called Calgary's corporate radical. Before we cover all of his tremendous accomplishments, let's start where the story starts, in Calgary. Mac, welcome, and I'd love to hear the story. Thank you very much, Marty. It's a real, it's a real pleasure to be here with you and to be able to have this, this conversation. Uh, the story is of a family... Uh, who, um, a family of, of immigrants, actually, uh, who came from, my parents came from Indonesia, and my brother and sister who were born in Indonesia. My parents had deep roots in the Netherlands, and uh, the Netherlands was then administering uh, Indonesia. And uh, after the war, my father was, uh, he was stationed in the military police for the Netherlands and, uh, and, and uh, in Indonesia. And my mother was actually born and raised in Indonesia in as much as she's Dutch. And so they immigrated into Canada right after the war with my brother and sister. And on May 27th, 1953, for better or worse, I was born in Calgary. Mac, we're all products of our early life, and it helps us throughout our life. What are the things that are your first recollections? Well, with, with respect to my early life, and uh, I, I just mentioned my parents uh, and their uh, relationship with the Netherlands and coming into Canada as immigrants, I think the particularly distinctive part of my family life and my family of origin was the actual experience that my parents had in the Second World War. There's no question that ultimately it had a real influence on me and my, and my family, my brother and my sister. And my father, he, uh, his family were actually German. They were from Germany. They were Jewish German refugees into the Netherlands in 1938. And at that time, he was around 15 years of age. And they were fleeing persecution. And he ended up uh, in the Dutch resistance, in hiding and in the Dutch resistance and fighting, and lost most of his family. At last count, we have about 25 members of his extended family were killed in extermination camps in Europe. And what's incredible about the story is that my father 
did not talk about what happened to him in the war until he was 85 years of age. We knew he had been in the resistance and we knew he had been very active because he had a number of scars on his body. He also had a luger in his sock and underwear drawer that we found as little kids with a, a loaded clip beside it. And we were always awestruck by that and we're always asking him to tell us what happened. And he's one of these people who just would not have that conversation. Again, not until he was 85 years of age. And when he was 85, under pretty serious encouragement from the family, if not pressure, he said, okay, well, I'll, I'll tell you what happened. And the first thing he said was his mother was a survivor of Auschwitz. Again, we had no idea about this. And Block 10, which was Mengele's unit, and we subsequently discovered that she was subjected to medical experimentation in that unit. But she survived, which was amazing. And, and then he told us a few other stories, and he tried to explain to us, he tried to explain to me why he never talked and why he couldn't talk. And he, he would share a few stories that were uh, absolutely agonizing. And to this day, I'm deeply appreciative of the fact that he did ultimately uh, have, that, have that conversation with us. But just to round, round this out, to round off the story, his story a little bit, <coughs> his mother was a survivor of Auschwitz, but his mother's sister, we subsequently found out, based on our own research, had married a man by the name of Herman Van Pels. And they had a son whose name was Peter. They were the Van Pels who were in hiding with Anne Frank. And so there was one sister in hiding with the Franks. And there was another sister who was in Block 10 with Mengla. And of course, the sister, August Van Pels, uh, she ultimately, they were found out and they were all murdered. Ironically, his mother, though, survived Mengele and Auschwitz. And Marty, I'll just, I'll just detour a little bit onto my mother's side. My mother was Dutch-Dutch, so my father was Jewish-German, but he always said he was Dutch. And where he lived was right beside the Netherlands. He spoke fluent Dutch. But my mother was, was truly Dutch. And she was, when she was 14, at gunpoint in Indonesia, she and her family were all split up and taken away and put into Japanese concentration camp. And so she lived for three and a half years in a Japanese camp. And uh, with uh, extremely, uh, under extremely difficult circumstances, she was more open. She would talk and she would tell us uh, about what happened. But in terms of my, my childhood experiences, my early childhood experiences, and actually as an adult, it wasn't until probably 10, 15 years ago that I was actually able to talk about my mother's war experiences. I just found it too emotional. And then, and so we all carried that. 
And then my father, when he ultimately talked, we, that got layered on top of it. So that is the context, in a sense, of my upbringing. But they were absolute survivors. They were totally committed to live and to survive. And that's what they wanted for their family. There's a number of questions. One is, was it still very painful for your father to share those stories even at 85? It was. And we never got the full story from him. Uh, he told me a few stories. And um, they're actually stories that um, I wouldn't, for example, share in this, in this interview. The, the actual detail of the stories, it's, they're too horrific like what he witnessed. I understand. And what he experienced. And I can talk about it, and I'm okay talking about it now. Uh, but it took, it took quite a while for me to get comfortable. But uh, in terms of his level of comfort, well, he opened up and he started talking. And I remember when he was talking to me, he stayed totally focused on me. He was riveted. And he kept saying, do you want to hear more? Can you handle it? Can you hold it? And he was really tuned in because he knew how shocking it was and kind of the burden of it. Uh, and he, he argued that he was trying to protect us. I think the truth is he was trying to also protect himself from having to relive the, uh, the experiences. I can understand that. Did, was there any sense of relief on his part? Do you think that he finally did share those stories with you? Or? It's a really good question, Marty. I, um, I'd like to think there was. You know, I, it's not obvious to me. Uh, he was, when he talked, he was calm, steady, very much in control. So, um, I'd, I, again, I'd, I'd like to think it was really helpful. Uh, to him. Now, your mother did know about his stories? Had he, he? No. No. I told her, which is also amazing in itself that he never even talked to his wife about what happened. She knew that he was active in the resistance, and she used to joke about it a little bit. She would talk about what they did as in the resistance and uh, that they, they killed Nazis and Nazi soldiers and throw them in the canals. And then what would happen, there, was, there would be uh, recriminations. There would be, uh, the Nazis would uh, uh, respond disproportionately to those incidents and would take 10 or 20 Dutch people out of a restaurant or whatever and, and shoot them on the street. And she was aware that he had to carry that. And, there was, and it's a real moral question as to, and, and a lot of people in the Netherlands to this day uh, challenge the, the, uh, the moral logic of, uh, of fighting back as, as the resistance did. As you look back when you finally heard these stories and even today, what sort of an impact did, you, did that have on the family during the early years because these are experiences that they've had that had to affect both of them in both negative and positive ways, I guess, because you learn from this. As you look back, what sort of impact did that have on you guys? 
You know, that's a question that I've been processing actually for a few decades now. And um, there's no question as I look back that it had a huge impact on our family. Uh, um, our, our upbringing was, uh, and our house was uh, quite tense. Uh, it was somewhat sterile. Um, there was no music, um, no literature. Uh, my father was a very intelligent and incredibly well-educated man, uh, and he knew a lot. But there really wasn't a culture within the family to encourage anything that might have been of more of an aesthetic nature, nor was he actually engaged in sports. Um, and my mother was, she had a grade 8 education, um, and she was... Uh, your quintessential uh, dutiful uh, mother, Dutch mother. Um, but uh, there, was, there was a lot of tension. Uh, and my sister and I, I have a brother and a sister, my sister and I, over the years, became very aware that something was just wrong. And, uh, and, and, and she in particular was tuned into it. And she was the one who started to put pressure on him. And I had trouble believing that he was hiding something. And, uh, but ultimately, she proved to be totally uh, right. And I think, and it's well documented, it's well researched in psychology, is that when people have a big secret, and if you're really hiding something, your, your expression in life has changed. And our expression as a family was, was impacted, in a sense, uh, by that. And the, the, the one way it manifests, and I saw this in my father, and I never could understand it, was a sense of shame. And particularly if you've been persecuted, and you've been persecuted for years, as he was. I mean, he was, if he was hiding and fighting, and if caught he would have faced certain death. And so he was living that way for years because his mother was Jewish and they weren't practicing Jews. And, uh, and so it's, um, it's, it has one of the implications for us as a family is, and for myself, is an acute sensitivity to prejudice um, and behaviors that are degrading of others an acute sensitivity. And as you look at my professional career, um, I, I gravitated towards uh, um, organizational leadership in various ways. And it was, it was partly because I saw the power of being able to treat people well in the context of... Uh, our experience together, the culture within those organizations, and the importance of ethics, openness, transparency, and honesty uh, within organizations. And so, in a very strange way, as these things manifest, it was transformational for me, and it was, it was uh, a powerful part of my, my own functioning in life. I would think for your father specifically too it takes a lot of energy to have this inside of you 
not being able to share it, but certainly you, I would think you relive these things all the time yeah. with the experiences that have happened. Uh, was there strong discipline in the family? Was, was discipline a factor? Was, was he encouraging of your early career? Well, he was encouraging uh, of uh, education. And um, I heard him say tens of maybe hundreds of times, uh, you want to get a great education because it's one of the only things that they can't take away from you. Now, my father had a great education. And we're still not 100% sure where and how, uh, but he had, an ex he had an extraordinary grasp of languages and history. Latin uh, and history in all respects all over the world it was really amazing and so he, he placed a, a great value on education and he also was a, had a very inquiring mind uh, very research oriented which I've acquired and, uh, and that has, that has uh, uh, served me as well and so I um, you know, I, I think the whole family experience and the history and his influences and my, and my mother's influences uh, uh, were really profound. Well, I can, these are such emotional and, and personal experiences. I really appreciate you sharing that with me today. But I'd also like to know now what sort of interest did you have as a young child growing up in this household? What were some of the things that you first started becoming interested in? Well, I, I referenced curiosity. I, uh, I was in, intensely curious as a child, uh, kind of about everything. It, it felt like it had no limits. And, uh, and so um, I was very oriented towards learning, um, I was always asking questions. At a very young age, I was exploring some of the bigger questions of life. Such as? Uh, well, psychology, philosophy, why are we here? Um, you know, I had, a, and I think, and further to your earlier question about, well, how did, we, how did it impact us? I, and what was our family like? It was like growing up. I had an an acute attunement to meaning, relevance, coherence, or meaninglessness, futility, and dissonance. And uh, I, I actually, uh, this is kind of an interesting little tidbit in my first report card in grade one, the first piece of feedback I ever got from a teacher was, Mackie tends to sit back and listen quietly during class discussion, and then he summarizes for everybody. Now, I remember the way I felt, and that was, hey, we just had a conversation, and what, what was the meaning of that conversation? We can't just get up and walk out, and that's, a, uh, that's an effort to, um, to extract meaning, but also to offer meaning to others, which is an integral part of leadership. Were you um, in school, um, active in sports? Uh, you know, what was 
your interpersonal relationships in school in that time? Well, the, the, the sports part is, I, I was generally active in sports, uh, but I never viewed myself as being outstanding, uh, except in one activity in sport, and that was martial arts. And uh, I dedicated myself to martial arts and karate uh, for many years. And, uh, and it probably fits a little bit with the family history. I felt a need to have to defend myself or to defend myself if I had to. And I never, I never did, uh, uh, thankfully, thankfully. And so, and, and then also in terms of sports, uh, it won't surprise you because you see me in the gym a bit, uh, I was really into long-distance running uh, and eventually long-distance cycling and then lots of other uh, well, fitness, I can, I mean, I know from our personal experiences yeah. together in the gym, that's still yeah. a factor in your life. Oh, it is. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is. And in terms of my interpersonal relations, I feel like I've been very, very fortunate. I, uh, I have uh, uh, so many friends and great relationships and long-lasting uh, relationships. And I, I came to appreciate, very consciously appreciate the value of friendship in my life. Uh, and all of this somehow connects back to my family and my parents and what they went through. I mean, they lost their families. And so I always gravitated towards, you could say, creating family or creating unity, in a sense, uh, with groups, and whether it's friends or, or uh, professionally. We, yeah, we talk a lot on this uh, pod, these podcasts about a sense of community a sense of belonging, a sense of um, shared goals and accomplishments and those sorts of things. And that comes out of a very early age, I think. There are, are leaders and there are not. I mean, I, don't, yeah. I'm not, I believe it's to be almost an innate factor, but it could, certainly be, can be learned and be, uh, become better. But I think that at an early age, we find out who those leaders are. Yeah. What was your first... You, you go through grammar school, uh, the education after that, all in Canada, in Calgary. Uh, what, what does that look like? Yeah, my, my education, uh, uh, post-secondary or after, uh, after what we call high school uh, in Canada, was uh, uh, initially was at the University of Calgary in business and economics, and then I went to the University of Western Ontario to the Ivy Business School and studied honors business, and uh, and then I did a year of postgrad studies at Harvard University, uh, and 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 that's a I don't talk about that very much. I I feel a little almost a little shy about it, but when I look back. It's interesting to ask, to explore, for me to explore, why do I feel shy about it? It's because my motives were so unusual for wanting to go to Harvard. I wanted to go there after I studied finance at business school. I wanted to go somewhere to one of the best universities in the world to study economic theory, social theory, political theory, and all the I referenced earlier the bigger questions, all the bigger questions that are still that are still with us today. You know, what is the best economic system? 
you know, what, what is uh, the role of markets? Um, communism, I read all Karl Marx's stuff. Uh, the history of liberal uh, democracy and, and free markets, open markets, and uh, they, the role of financial markets and security markets and capital formation. How is capital actually created and what's its, how is it used in society and how are we making decisions about the allocation of capital in a free economy versus a state economy? All those kinds of things um, actually were strangely were of, of real interest to me. And, and that interest has never gone away. And that's why there is this strange little reference in my bio to being Cal- Calgary's corporate radical <laughs> that came from somebody who listened to me a few times and say, hey, this guy's got some very different views. I wasn't that comfortable with the expression radical. Uh, but uh, I, I have a, a, a deeper questioning um, underneath everything, uh, everything that I do. So it's always thinking outside of the box, not just... Absolutely. Yeah. That's not to say that it's a reactive thinking outside, but I'm very prepared to think outside and ask the big questions, why are we doing it this way? I mean, can there be better ways? What was your first professional experiences? I came out of uh, Harvard and I... Uh, <clears throat> I, I also had a, a strong interest in entrepreneurism, and I probably got that from my father. Uh, he was a, he was a, an extraordinary entrepreneur, uh, and I went into the actually the construction business for a few years, my own little company with a friend, uh, installing uh, precast uh, paving products in Vancouver. Uh, did that for a few years and actually did quite well. Uh, I then went and worked for uh, a go- the government in British Columbia, the BC Housing Commission, doing, uh, man- they made me manager of research there, and that I didn't do that for very long. And then my father called and said, I want you to work for me. And so I moved back to Calgary. And at that point, also my wife Susan was uh, was with me. And... Um, who I met at the University of Western Ontario. And so we go back forever. Uh, and uh, I went and worked uh, at my father's company as a, uh, an economic analyst. And was when you go back and work for your father, uh, what's the dynamic professionally between you and your father? Well, it's, it's, it's the only time in my life when I develop stomach ulcers. <laughs> I loved the guy, but I couldn't work for him. So I gave that a shot for a few years. My son now works for me, my son Rob. He works for me, and uh, we have a fantastic working relationship. So uh, it can, it, there's a lot of upside. There's a lot of potential in those, uh, in those relationships with, uh, with our, our, our children. But you, but, learned, but you learned from your own experience how best to make that work. I'm sure that had something it, to do absolutely. with it. Absolutely. But the dynamic working with my father was difficult. It was like he was he was your your uh, he was the uh, typical um, European top down autocrat and uh, uh, kind of dictating and telling everybody what to do. And 
um, most of the people around him were very prepared to do just what they were told. Um, I wasn't. And so that was more challenging for me. And for him, I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. I, I sort of, when I think back on it, I'm not sure how aware he was uh, that it was, uh, that I was there and struggling. But ultimately, he, I left and I went into the investment business. Uh, and then I spent, I spent basically my whole career in the investment business and in different parts of the investment business as a securities analyst and uh, corporate finance and I ran corporate finance for the Bank of Montreal in, in Alberta relating to, well, the, all, all business in Alberta and all the en- energy, the energy sector in Canada and and uh, uh, spent probably 10 years in advisory, pure advisory work, merger, acquisition, uh, restructurings, reorganizations, refinancing, like very, very complex uh, financial uh, uh, transactions and but my father, he he was he was he was uh, you know he was supportive and uh, uh, appreciative and ultimately very proud of what I was what I was able to do. And in the the corporate world and the financial world, um, what was your underlying attitudes about what you wanted to accomplish? I mean, obviously profitability, I would think, is part of that. But knowing what I know of you, there's some underlying um, yeah. basic things that you wanted to accomplish also. Well, I think that's why I referenced uh, my parents' orientation towards survival. Um, I had a very deep background in economics and finance, and I was aware of the statistics as to how difficult it is to actually develop a business and grow a business and sustain uh, success that most businesses eventually hit the wall and underperform and, and fail in some way. When you actually look at the statistics, it's quite extraordinary. And so uh, I wanted to do it differently. I wanted to be involved in businesses that could be built and, and could sustain uh, financial performance, but also a very positive quality of experience for everybody involved uh, within the organization and our stakeholders, everybody we're in touch with. I, I wanted them, to all of them, to... Uh, yes, profitability was, was, uh, was essential and had to be there. But I always had this curiosity as to how powerful an organization could be if they could really get the culture right. And that, that part of it. Well, it sounds too different from your dad. You were very inclusive in your management style rather than dictatorial in that, in yeah. that management style. Yeah. You know, and it, it's, it's a very interesting question and philosophy as to what management style is best in a sense because, yes, I, I definitely was more inclusive. However, if circumstances... Um, were really challenging and those challenges were narrowing in uh, you need people to come right to the front and say hey this this is what we have to do and uh, you know we, we can't just have a lot more conversation here we have we must move and this is the way we're going to we're going to go and here are the off ramps and let's let's get on get on with the uh, the task and move forward 
what we often talk here at at Bighorn about the fact that somebody, you want to take input, you want to listen, but at some point somebody has to make that decision and you need to move forward in a really positive manner. Absolutely, and I think Bighorn is a great example because we've we've all benefited from that. Absolutely. That, uh, That decisions are made and they're clear and... And I think most of us would agree they're in the interests of all of us, all members. Absolutely. Thank, yeah, and I think that, uh, well, just an aside here, when, what was the first time you met R.D. Hubbard and what was your first impression? <laughs> Actually, I laugh a little bit because I'm a, I'm a bit embarrassed about this, uh, but not so embarrassed that I won't, I won't tell everybody the, the story. But we had had either were in the process of joining or had just joined, I can't remember, but um, somebody organized a, uh, a meeting uh, between myself and Susan and, and R.D. Actually, it might have even just been myself, and, uh, and, and which I thought was great, but I showed up late, like quite a bit late, 15, 20 minutes. Anyway, he was gone, and that was... Uh, R.D.'s first meeting with me was the meeting that never happened, and I don't think he was very impressed, but everything has worked out great. That's terrific. Yeah, there is such a thing as Hubbard time, that's for sure, and it still exists. So now your business career has flourished. Um, Your personal life um, continues to be great, this long-term relationship with Susan. Uh, Tell us a little bit about how that continues to grow after the early years of your business successes? Well, I think, I think it was uh, very difficult. Uh, it was very challenging for my whole family and for Susan in, in, their, in my early years because it's just, the, it's just the typical story because I wasn't around very much. And often when I was around, I was preoccupied. And, uh, and so I think that was challenging. Uh, and uh, um, Susan has a background in um, or- originally in music, so in some ways the opposite extreme of finance and economics. And she's very interested in culture and art, and then ultimately she went into social work and became a counselor. And our daughter is actually a counselor, or she's a, a clinical psychologist as well and so there was a lot of that in my in my family and then our son Rob uh, I mentioned he's he's working with me and he has a background in finance but I I think relationships are uh, rocky Uh, they're highs and lows Uh, but Susan and I have um committed ourselves to uh, really work through our issues and to, to, to keep talking uh, about our, our issues and um, really being very respectful of each other's uniqueness and the process we need as individuals to develop ourselves. And sometimes that means sort of just stepping back a bit and then coming back at, 
at the issue or the or the problem. And we've we've been together now for over forty years, and uh, and we're I I think we're doing very well. Yeah, it's a, it's a dance, <laughs> and, and again, it's it's always evolving. I think relationships are sure always it is. evolving. Sure, it is. Yeah. With all the success that you've had, um, what still drives you? Well, the work that I'm doing right now, the focus of my work is uh, in two broad areas. One is what I call leadership governance. And uh, uh, the role I'm playing in our my principal business, which is Arc Financial, is which is a private equity firm, early stage, uh, so selecting and supporting, financing and supporting uh, entrepreneurs within the energy sector to develop, build their businesses. And uh, the, our core competency is really around um, building businesses. That's what we really, that's what we have to do well. And, and much of that occurs at the board of director level. And so I made it a real, uh, a real passion, a real commitment to understand how corporate directors can influence uh, the probabilistic outcomes of their organizations. And uh, there are no guarantees, but if you do things a certain way versus another way, you can, you can change the outlook uh, quite, quite profoundly, profoundly in, in my experience. And so I've uh, studied the issue of governance and governance leadership in depth. I educate people around, around this. I do lots of public speaking and writing for the conference board in Canada. And uh, I meet with the, uh, our portfolio um, company executives um, fairly regularly to uh, share with them my learnings around leadership generally and, uh, and, and, and governance and strategy, how to develop and how to even know if you have a great strategy, those kinds of questions. So that is all one area of focus for me. The other area of focus for me has actually been public policy uh, in Canada relating to our, our energy sector, which has become very controversial in Canada and, of course, even globally. Uh, the, the, uh, with a lot of the environmental issues and climate, um, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's become a very politically and even emotionally charged uh, area that I've really stepped into to try to offer some coherence and and some different ways to understand how we can m make decisions relating to our, our energy business from a policy point of view. Is politics in your future? Well, you know, I'm, I'm asked that often, and uh, I will confess, you know, here, here comes the strangeness of Canada, is if I could speak French... It might be, because our national politicians, you can only go so far unless you're bilingual, and I can't speak French. And so, uh, and, and the other confession is that I enjoy my life so much. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to take on, you know, everything that, you know, politics entails. But 
that's not as significant as actually the, the, the issue of speaking French. Well, and again, you can be involved in politics without running for office. Yeah, and I am. I am. I'm regularly communicating with, with uh, politicians and government people, provincially and federally. There's always a number of questions I have for you as this conversation goes on, but because of your study of economics and your interest in every aspect of economics, I know it's not a short answer, but we now have a world economy, not just it's not regional, it's not just local, it's, it's, it's impacted around the world. What, what do you see as the direction right now? What's our biggest challenges? Well... I'm a huge believer in, in free markets and free market institutions. I'm also a huge believer in the importance of redistribution of wealth, both, which again makes me a little different. But the way they marry up for me is I, don't, I, I, I think if, if we don't have appropriate redistribution uh, and the funding of what I think of as social prosperity, uh, education and health, we won't be able to really sustain the the aggregate, the the whole of our of our society. You have to have both both pieces in place. What concerns me right now are the erosion in liberal, democratic, free market institutions in the world. It does. It does concern me, and internationally, and and domestically, and Canada is very different than the United States. Uh, your, your political leadership is oriented significantly differently than ours right now in Canada. And uh, uh, so in Canada, for example, to be more specific, we've, we've seen uh, a, uh, a government that I think can be a, a, uh, accurately be re- described as being um, uh, indifferent, in a sense, if not negative, and, uh, and even, not, even potentially hostile towards uh, the business sector and capital formation, uh, and in the in the United States, your current leadership is not oriented that way. But you still have those same those same currents going through all your politics, you know, with the Green New Deal and and the the divisiveness and the polarization of all of that has is is concerning. And related to that, and related to my family of origin. Uh, the divisiveness, the, the polarization, um, the languaging around the polarization, the loss of civility in discourse, uh, the the rise of um, of hate-driven aggression uh, around the world uh, is has to be of a concern, you know, to all of us. Uh, is, uh, conscientious people. Do you have hope? I am an optimistic person. I have hope. I don't think you can be in leadership unless you can see your way through, unless you have confidence that there is a way through. And you know, now, for example, in the business sector, I am uh, trying to encourage and influence and implore business leaders, leaders of businesses to view themselves as leaders in society. Because where's the leadership going to come from in society? 
most of us would agree we're hard, it's, we're hard pressed to see it among our political leaders. It's, it's not going to come from our universities. It's not coming from churches or religion. I mean, where does it come from? And, uh, and I, so I'm, I'm always trying to encourage leaders in business uh, and in business and in, in the investment world uh, to explore more deeply the profound issues that people are struggling with around, for example, the role of business in society and, uh, and how businesses can really, business can really contribute to society. And it can't just be, oh, well, we create wealth and we create jobs. It has to be deeper than that. And <clears throat> I see that change happening. There's no question that change is happening. Now, some people are frustrated with it. It looks too progressive or it looks socialistic. I, I just don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is more that leadership historically has been too narrow uh, and uh, perhaps shallow. And, uh, but it, the hope I have and the, my optimism is I see um, uh, a lot of leaders now stepping up and uh, being willing to take on more profile, uh, to explore more deeply um, their own vision and to share that uh, with others. If you have a business background, you all have also, I would think, have a more balanced idea about how to accomplish that rather than just a politician who hasn't had any of those real-world experiences. Absolutely. Excellent point. And the reality is if you have a business background, you can see that to, to be successful, you're having to manage a whole set of uh, different uh, fundamentals and priorities and they're often conflicting and you have to make decisions around that and I often say that the enemy is actually rigidity of perspective that if you're singularly focused on one outcome and if you have an organization that's and I'm going to hear pick on a lot of the environmental activist groups who are singularly focused on one outcome uh, it, that the other essential outcomes in, for that business or in society can be ignored. It sounds, too, like compromise is a missing factor in Com many of these goals. I think, I think compromise and also the capacity to hold and contain different perspectives and not feel threatened by them. You know, we, we don't have to sort of go into our corner and, and uh, come back with our, our fists up. We can actually find ways to hold different perspectives and work with them. Well, a, a comment that I read from you, too, is uh, don't let great strategy fall flat because of poor execution. Yeah. Um, you know, you still have to execute Absolutely. these ideas and these, yeah. these goals. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I view strategy very comprehensively. It's not just a plan that's on the shelf. It's... It, it's integrated with vision and, uh, and, uh, and strategy without execution just doesn't make any sense. I mean, what is strategy without uh, execution? So the, all the issues around execution have to be part of, uh, of great strategy. What do you look for in people you work with? If I don't see curiosity, I don't hire them. 
I need to see, and it looks shows up differently in different people, but I need to see the, that sparkle, the aliveness, comfortable asking questions, and they're not asking questions for the sake of asking questions. They're asking questions because they want to know. Uh, so that, that is a, a, a real critical piece. And comfort in, in working hard. Uh, work ethic, just pretty basic. And finding joy through work. They're, they're not thinking, oh, I have to go and work hard and I just can hardly wait, you know, for the day to end. They actually are quite excited about it all. And even in the difficult times and problem solving. Who has had the greatest influence on your life? And it doesn't have to be one person because I'm sure there's yeah. many. Well, certainly my wife Susan has. And, and I think it was, it was because she was a great foil for me and a counterbalance. You know, she, was, uh, she brought a whole different way of looking at life uh, into our, re- our relationship, which was much more from the social, psychological uh, perspective. Balance. And, yeah. Yeah, she brought that in. And, uh, and arts, as I mentioned, and music and... Uh, culture. I mean, so Susan had a had a huge influence, and her love for people and our children and family uh, made a made a real big difference uh, to me in my life. Both my my parents clearly did in different ways. Um, I haven't talked much about my mother. Uh, she was incredibly uh, benevolent, like no harm intended, innocent, sweet. So I saw that. I saw that it was, it was possible in a human being. <laughs> that you could have somebody who's, you know, not preoccupied with self-interest and prepared to potentially take from others or even hurt others to get what they want. I mean, she was very different that way. And my father, he, he, insert, you know, he his, his resilience... And his capacity to get up when knocked down was a huge learning for me. And he got knocked down a number of times, not just in the war, but actually in his business experience. I mean, he built up a great business in Canada, and then eventually it collapsed, and he lost everything. And he started again. His name was Gus, his first name. And after losing everything, and at the age of 66, he started again. He, and he started a little gas, natural gas exploration company called New Gas. And we used, everybody used to tease him and call it New Gus. And it was sort of like born again. And that got sold, and he didn't invest his capital very well. And so he was always kind of on the edge of taking too much risk and being prepared to accept failure. I'm on the edge of accepting risk, but I'm not actually comfortable with failure. And a lot of people say, go out there, fail, fail fast and all that. And some of the young people who work with me would say that. And I've never subscribed to that philosophy. I, I don't want people coming into my office and say, well, you know, I just had this great experience in failing with our investors' money. And I learned a lot. I, I don't need that. And uh, I think there's other ways... Uh, we can learn, and even just by examining other people's uh, failures. Does success breed success? 
Well, I think success... You know, Marty, I don't think it's, it's obvious. I think, I think success can breed success in that it can give you confidence, but it can also breed arrogance and complacency. And you start to think the reason why you're successful is because you're so great. And you can go out and do anything. And you can go out and do the same thing again, build the same kind of business. But meanwhile, the business environment has changed. Everything has changed. And your skills are different. And your skills aren't appropriate. And I've seen that over and over. So I, I don't... Uh, yeah, it's not, it's not a, a straightforward thing. And it's the same thing in, in investment management. I, I was the chair of the Alberta Investment Management Corporation, which is... Uh, one of the largest investment management businesses businesses in in uh, in uh, Canada. Uh, I remember a study we did of uh, investment managers, uh, where we were looking at the relationship between historical success and future success. And what we found was, after three years of success, there was an inverse relationship. That is, the the more a manager was successful, the greater the probability that they would fail. In the, in the ensuing period. And by failure, it's underperformance. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. But there's, and, I've, and I, again, I've spent my career in the investment management business, but a lot of it relates to um, thinking, well, you know, I, I've done it so well and I, I'm so capable of doing it. If I, if I just keep doing it, and if I'm the one doing it and making the decisions, it's, we're going to be successful. And it doesn't work that way. It seems to me, too, that arrogance, no matter what the profession, politics, business, that's the thing that drives people down it almost does. more than anything else. I think it does. I think it does. It's a mindset. What is your management philosophy? And anybody listening to this, this normally costs you a lot of money for Mac to be giving this particular piece of information. Well, I, uh, I've, I've read a lot of business books over the years. And I remember one time walking through a bookstore and looking at all the, the titles in the, among the business books. And the famous authors are writing these books and thinking, wow, I... How can all these people be right? They're, they're taking on such diverse subjects, whether it's finance or, or marketing, or, you know, I talked about culture, maybe it's, uh, it's, it's culture, it's execution, it's vision, the visioning company. Uh, it's uh, on and on. So, and there's so many great, great researchers and writers. And it finally dawned on me that they were all right. That there are a set of, you might say, essential conditions or essential fundamentals that must be in place for an organization to be able to sustain success. And you, you have to do each one at least reasonably well. Like you could have everything could be going great, but if you haven't financed your company properly... Uh, you 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 could very well fail in the next in the next downturn, and there's so many examples of that. Or if you're not client oriented and customer focused, everything could be fun, uh, fantastic, and you can have great assets and be financed properly, uh, but you you won't be successful in the long term. And so, the one word I place on that 
for leaders is is materiality, is knowing what is material and what is most important and being very open to what is material and really looking around because invariably there's a whole bunch of things that are material. And the second word I use is comprehensiveness. And that is you need to think comprehensively and you need to have a strategy that's comprehensive that can encompass all that, that, all that is material. There's, there's other pieces to that. Now, the problem is, with what I've just said, is that it, it sounds a bit overwhelming. And it sounds complex. And as I often say to our managers of our portfolio companies, welcome to business leadership. It is complex. You can simplify it, but that doesn't mean that you can ignore some part of your organization and think that you're going to be successful. It won't, it won't work that way. And in your strategy, if you're singularly focused in your strategy, say, towards the external environment and, and competition and how you're going to compete, but you're ignoring what's going on internally within your own organization, you're, you're, that's, a, that's a strategy that will fail. And so materiality, comprehensiveness, depth, Depth of knowledge, depth of understanding, depth of expertise. I'm also continuously arguing that, that view to our younger managers. Because if you don't have the depth of understanding, you won't have the conviction. And if you don't have the conviction, you're not going to be a strong leader. And you really have to go deep to understand the fundamentals and understand the realities and keep asking difficult questions and as you develop then the, the knowledge and the insight from that, it'll be evident to everybody as you're leading and as you're making decisions. Evolving is important, I would think, and constantly, constantly learning. Absolutely. You started that as your, in childhood. You, know, yeah. you, you, were, you were inquisitive, curiosity. The simple word I use is adaptability there. And so, <laughs> materiality, comprehensive depth, depth, adaptability. And adaptability encompasses all that you're saying. You have to have a learning mindset, and you have to be bringing that into your organization. A final question. What advice would you give the 20-year-old you today? If, I, if I'm speaking to that 20-year-old today... I would say, hey, everything's going to work out really well. Just work hard. Keep asking the questions. Be really honest with others and yourself. And everything will work out very well. Mac, I really want to thank you for being here today. We talked at the start about we want to educate. We want to have an emotional attachment. The honesty in which you presented your story, as, as I told you at the start, especially when you were talking about your parents, is greatly appreciated. Mm -hmm. But again, I know that people will listen to this, and these are the stories of the people here at Bighorn, is uh, your success, but also the type of person you are. And again, I really appreciate you sharing all this with us today. My pleasure, Marty. Thanks. Thank you. As a postscript, Mac mentioned to me that he and his wife Susan 
are going to the Netherlands the first week of May to participate in the celebration of the 75th anniversary of its liberation. Also, they are supporting an international exhibition of Anne Frank and her family, coming through their home city of Calgary in June of this year. One quote of Anne Frank's that has inspired many, that Mac referenced, is how wonderful it is that no one has to wait a single moment to do something to improve the world. She somehow saw through her horrid and threatening conditions and retained an extraordinarily positive view of on life and the contribution all of us can make. Once again, I want to thank Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers and AT&T, who reminds us again, it can wait. Please don't drive distracted. We thank them for their support, and we look forward to seeing you again on our next episode of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories.